Well, hi, this is Ken Harrison, and uh, welcome to the study on a daring faith in a cowardly world. Now, if you've gone through my past Bible studies on the book I wrote on uh, uh, Rise of the Servant Kings, the study was really loosely based on the book. It was more a masculinity. It was done specifically for some pastor's courses. This will be much more based on the actual book. So if you're getting together, you're reading this book together, and, and maybe some of you are watching this, these videos, they'll be about 20 minutes long on average, and then go through the chapters. This will be much more based on the book, and it will be augment each chapter. In fact, I'll take some of the comments that I've had and questions from people and then, and then try to answer them. So hopefully, as you go through this, you, you have a question, you go, oh, can I just answer it on the, on the video? Um, if you're new to this, this book may be very challenging for you. Not challenging to read. I'm not smart enough to write something hard to read, but um, challenging as far as what you know about the Bible. Now, I'm not giving you my opinion here because you don't care about my opinion and I don't care about it. I care about what God's Word says. So everything we do will come from God's Word. But we are going to talk a lot about what's the point of the Christian walk. Why do we need to work so hard? If God did everything on the cross, then why does he then make all these demands of us? What's the point of all that? These will may seem like really new ideas. Um, they're not new ideas. In fact, these were prevalent throughout the early church and really prevalent throughout the church all the way until the Reformation. And the Reformation, which was a great thing, but the solo fide idea that, that faith alone results in salvation is absolutely true. But then the idea of good works really got pushed aside completely. And what we're going to see here, solo fide, faith alone, is what results in salvation. But then good works are required after salvation. And, uh, I, you know, because of my position of promise keepers, I know a lot of big pastors and big name preachers and, and whatnot. And I actually gave this manuscript to a lot of them when I was done and said, punch holes in it. Tell me what's wrong with it. Argue with me. And really didn't have any of that. In fact, um, you know, I, there was a controversial book. I was talking to the author of a book and um, he and I were, as we were discussing it, I was just destroying his book, not, not meaning to. And he looked, gee, I never thought about all those things. And I said, well, the problem is you, you wrote a book for your specific theology and you didn't give it to anybody else. And you wrote for people who agree with you, but you didn't think of all these counter arguments. And so for this book, I really thought, man, it's just such a new thing. It's a new old thing that I really want to go out to scholars and say, man, tell me if I'm missing the boat on this. And so I did that. Um, I actually had one scholar screaming at me, uh, how dare you write a book on good works for Christians? And then after he read the, the manuscripts, we called to apologize. Maybe the biggest compliment I got was I had one uh, theologian who, for whom I have great respect who said, when I got your book, I sat down with a pen to rip it to shreds and I was going to call you and tell you how wrong you were. And he said, actually, by the time I got done, my theology completely changed. And in fact, now I can't unsee it. Everywhere I look, it says good works, rewards. You're going to be judged by your works. Like, how did I never see this before? So I want to challenge you if this is new to you. The problem we often have is that we are given a th systematic theology, a systematic way of thinking, of seeing the Bible, whether you realize it or not. And you come to the Bible with this idea of these certain assumptions are true. And then you, sometimes we don't actually register, wow, what I'm reading is completely opposite of what the Bible says. And a lot of commentaries spend a lot of time trying to explain why the Bible doesn't say what it actually says. And so what we want to do is come to God's Word, assuming it says exactly what it says. And I don't mean this, that to sound trite, 
But I do really mean uh, to examine God's word the way it, for exactly what it says. Let's have the audacious idea that Jesus meant what he said and he didn't mean something else. Now, I come from all this, honestly, I've never said this publicly. I've never talked about it publicly. It was never really a point, but I think it's a point here for this because I think sometimes to understand how a writer or a teacher came to a certain set of ideas is helpful. And in this case, it is. Um, I was saved at the age of five at Tri-City Baptist Temple in, in Gladstone, Oregon. My dad had just been shot on the LAPD and retired us up to Oregon. My dad was a, a hard guy with a hard gambling and hard, hard drinking problem. And he went forward at the altar call at Tri-City Baptist Temple, and I ran up behind him as a five-year-old. And I really got saved at five. I was really filled with the Spirit at five years old and in love with the Lord. And I used to go with my dad everywhere. Uh, knocking on doors, my patent leather shoes on and handing out tracks and all that and, and just love Jesus. I would be at school telling everybody about Jesus. My teachers would have to tell me to shut up. This was before the militancy of all that we see today. This was the early 70s. But, um, man, I love Jesus. And, and I've often said it took the church about 10 years to beat the Holy Spirit out of me. Um, my dad, unfortunately, took his personality uh, before he was saved into his salvation, and so he became extremely legalistic. Um, man, no rock and roll music, short hair, um, couldn't wear black pants. I, I never figured that one out. Um, couldn't see movies. I mean, couldn't watch a bunch of TV shows. And, and what that did was basically, we moved to a neighbor, new neighborhood when I was 10 years old, and I went to this extremely legalistic school. Legalistic, if you don't know what I mean by that, it means a bunch of rules that are not grace. People who are really trying desperately to make God happy by keeping a bunch of rules he never asked them to keep. And so basically, at, at 10 years old, and the kids were all older than me, and here I was with a buzzed haircut and you know, in the mid-70s. Um, and whenever somebody would turn on ACDC or the Scorpions, I would have to leave because rock and roll was all from the devil and all that. So basically I had, please beat me up written on my forehead and they obliged. So I spent a lot of my time, uh, in those early years getting my butt kicked and loving Jesus, man. I mean, really, really walking with the Lord, but then I would get my butt kicked by the world and then I would go to school and a couple times got beaten really bad. Once they beat me so bad for nothing I had ever done that I couldn't sit down. And my mother cried when she saw the black and blue rear end I had. So I was getting beaten by the church. I was getting beaten by the world. And that love for the Lord continued, but a lot of questions started coming up in my mind. Well, what is all this? This doesn't seem to make any sense. I feel like I'm always in trouble. I feel like I'm always dodging and weaving, getting crushed by somebody. And there wasn't a lot of help. And I didn't learn to fight so much in those days. I learned how to lose. And they were keeping records of all the fights that I would get in, none of which I started. But literally just some guy would just punch me in the face. And so, and again, when you had hair like this in the 70s when everybody had really long hair over their ears, you were asking to get pummeled. And, um, and they did oblige. Well, <clears throat> puberty was kind to me. I, I got big. And so the, the beatings stopped there. Um, and then they kicked me out of the school because they kept asking questions. Because at the age of 12, I started really delving into the Bible because I was really confused. I thought, you know, the God that I know is not the God I'm seeing. Like this, everything just seems to be violence and hatred and anger and scowling and rules. And it doesn't seem to be the Lord who lives within me. And so I started to study the God's word. And, and I would read three chapters of the Bible every day, no matter what. And boy, when you start doing that when you're 12, by the time you're 15, you know the Bible pretty well. 
And, and I did. And I started asking innocent questions. I still had this a naive idea that adults just had wisdom and they were going to give to you. I didn't understand about jealousy and envy and people with preconceived notions who were trying to guard their ideas and people who would rather be right than have the truth. And so I would say, well, gosh, you said this, but the Bible says this. And then and, and I would be kicked out of the class. And finally, at the end of my 10th grade year, they threw me out of the school and just said, we'd rather have people here who don't challenge us based on the Bible. We'd rather have our own opinion. So I, I thank the Lord, I ended up in a really great church by a guy named Stu Weber, who you may have heard of. He's written a great men's book called The Tender Warrior. And Stu was a great mentor to me about what a man of God is. But by the time I had reached the age of uh, 19, 20, I just kind of had it. The church and its, and its hypocrisy and whatnot. And a lot of you feel that way. And I just didn't understand it. I was confused. And every time I'd ask a question of somebody who I thought would have an answer, I got platitudes. And I didn't get anything real. And I, and I was deeply confused. If Jesus did everything on the cross, then why does it say in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Well, what does it mean to continue to work out your salvation if Jesus did it all? I don't understand. And people would say things to me that just struck me as untrue, as people trying to just shut up a question because they didn't want to hear it. And these questions kept coming and kept coming. And what does it mean? Why does Jesus say he's going to judge you by your works if faith saves? So I want to encourage you on this journey with us. We're going to go through all these questions because I was the guy asking them. I was the guy with people yelling at me and even writing in this manuscript by guys who I respected, who I had to get patiently read the manuscript and then tell me and then yell at me. And then once they read it, they went, oh, wow, I've changed my theology. I want to challenge you on that. Um, at the age of 22, I think it was, I was a Los Angeles police officer and I was running with my Walkman on, and uh, yes, I'm that old, I had a Walkman, and I was listening to my heavy metal station, Pirate Radio in Los Angeles, and I went too far and I ended up in the Biola Hour. And uh, David Hawking on the Biola Hour had, had spoken to my soul so much that I came back from my run and fell on my knees and gave my life back to Christ. And so that starts the journey that we're gonna get to. So let's delve into this just a little bit right now in the remaining time we have for this introductory session. You'll see that there are two basic theologies that Christendom is based on, Protestant Christendom is based on, which is Arminianism and Calvinism. And neither one of those really, I think there's a lot of truth in both of them, but they didn't really satisfy. And really, as, as, as applies to us, the issue you had with Arminianism is that you were saved, but you could lose your salvation. And with Calvinism, it was, well, God chooses whether you get saved or not, and then you're going to show through your life if you're really saved or not. So if you sin, you're not really saved. So both of them left me a little bit wanting because I think they were both trying to pound a square peg into a round hole. I realize that a lot of theologians now I just offended, but stick with us on this. And you start seeing in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I think it's verse 12, there's these scriptures that seem to contradict each other. So in 2 Timothy, I think 2.12, it says, if you deny him, he will deny you. But if you're faithless, he remains faithful. Huh? What, doesn't that just say the opposite? Actually, no, it doesn't. What we have to do is start off with the idea that when the Bible talks about salvation, it's not always talking about the same thing. Sometimes it's talking about salvation from hell, which is how we normally take it. 
Oftentimes, it doesn't mean salvation from hell. It means salvation from a wasted life. It means salvation from not being a disciple of God's, of falling into the ways of the world. When Jesus talks about the wide path versus the narrow path, he's talking about two different things. So really what we need to get our minds around is there's two different things here. There's relationship, salvation. When you get saved by, by faith through grace of the Lord, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, only nothing having to do with yourself, you enter into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that relationship will never be lost. You become in the family, grafted in, adopted into the family of God. You are now a child of the Most High God, and that you cannot lose. God doesn't throw people out of his family. However, you do not have fellowship with him. Fellowship is something you earn. Everything in life tells us this. If you're a parent and you have kids, you are sometimes closer to your ch children than at other times, especially if they're adults. There are things that they can do to come closer to you and some things that can remove them farther away. Well, that's the same thing as our relationship with the Lord. We have relationship with him. That relationship will never be broken. If my son goes off and commits a murder and goes to prison, He's still my son. He will never stop being my son. And I would never throw him out of my family. But our fellowship is certainly interrupted for lots of different reasons. Inter interrupted by time and space. He's in prison. It's interrupted by whatever it is that caused him to make that murder. His heart is darkened. So we don't have the same relationship. Now, if my son is about the family business, if he's loving and serving his brother and his sister, if he's cherishing his mother, if he's taking care of his family, then we have deep fellowship because we are walking the same road together. So it is with the Lord. He has said we are children of his. And, and that relationship mirrors, he could have said any other kind of relationship he wanted to. He said it's like a father to a child. So we have become children of God. Now, what we do affects how much fellowship we have with God. I think that makes common sense, but yet it's not preached a whole lot. Another way of saying it is, we have acceptance by God. Our sins are forgiven. We are accepted by him. But we don't necessarily have approval by the Lord God. So when we see Jesus going off on Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to get into that in depth. Oh, wait a minute. He's now only talking to his disciples. He doesn't tell that to the whole mass of people there. He's only talking to those who love him. He brings his apostles up. To, to the hill and sits down with just his apostles. Now we know from the end, people are listening in, but the Bible's clear he's only talking to his apostles about all these tough things, turn the other cheek and um, you know, go the extra mile and the Beatitudes. Those are only to believers. And we see this in scripture over and over again. And you'll, as you go through the study, you're gonna to start to see things jump out at you that maybe didn't before. Second Timothy um, two, I think it's 14 says, be diligent to be a worker approved by God. Oh, what I just said. Be diligent. Do what it takes to be approved by God. Second Timothy uh, 2.22 says, again, make sure that you're being approved by God. And it gives us some action points. So one of the things I want to get through um, in this study is that so much we see in evangelical Christendom that somehow Christianity is about knowing the Bible really well and being able to win arguments or something. When in fact, everything in the Bible says it's about action, 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 action. When you look at the great heroes of the Bible, they were men and women who did stuff. They walked forward in faith. They didn't back down from a fight. They had all kinds of problems and warts on them. And yet they were diligent to go and do the mission that God had given them to do. And you and I all have a mission to do, which we're going to get into in Ephesians 2.10. But for now, 
it's not about studying the Bible so I can have more information about God. It's studying the Bible so I can know God and know what it is he expects from me. There's a big difference there. When I come to him, what am I trying to see? And as we look at God's word, let's go into 2 Timothy briefly here. We can see action, 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 action. Here's Paul, the last book he'll ever write. He knows he's about to be beheaded. He's in prison. He's saying to Timothy, everyone's fled from me. The great reward Paul has had for a life completely lived for Christ is that when he's in Roman prison, all of his friends have left him and he's all alone. And he's writing to Timothy saying, could you pre please bring me my cloak? I'm cold. That That's what he's got. And that's what the world's going to give you if you really work for the Lord. And he's going to reward you greatly, as we'll see, because of that. But Paul, as he's given the last advice he's ever going to give, says a couple of action points. He says, flee youthful passions. Not avoid them, not try not to do them. Flee youthful passions. What are youthful passions? We know what those are. What were you like when you were 20 years old? You were constantly thinking about sex and pride and impressing people and what did people think of you? And he says, flee those. That's an action. Run away. Same words he uses in Ephesians on Satan. Flee the devil. Um, the next action point, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Those are not going to come to you automatically. And so often we think in Christendom that I, I said this prayer and now I'm going to sit back and wait to become a better person. Well, what in the world has ever taught you or I that sitting around is going to make us stronger and better at anything? You want to get in shape? You got to pursue getting in shape. You got to go to the gym. You got to go for a run. You got to eat right. It, it's work. You want to learn how to speak Spanish? You have to pursue and study to speak Spanish, whatever it might be. Here we, we are told, pursue righteousness. The next word, reject. Again, action. Reject stupid arguments. And I can, I can tell you right now, here's God's word saying reject stupid arguments. People who don't want to follow the Lord are really good about having arguments about the Lord because they don't want to look into their own heart. So they're trying to usurp things and make them feel better by winning arguments. There's lots of people out there who study the Bible so they can win arguments. They really don't know the Lord God. So he's saying here, reject those types of arguments, be gracious, be loving. And I'll tell you, I tell this to pastors all the time. The three greatest words in the Christian language are, I don't know. Are there aliens in outer space? I don't know. I don't even know what you mean by aliens. We know there's powers and principalities and authorities, you know, out there. But what, are, you know, what about this? What about that? People want to divert you from God's word with stuff. Don't don't get into silly arguments. I don't know. I don't know. I know what God's word says, and He said exactly what He wanted to say, and He didn't say anything more, and He didn't say anything less. So if we stick to God's word with what we know, stop trying to help God out with little things and isms that we might know, we can avoid silly arguments. The last one of these is that we must be, we must be patient and teachable, correcting with gentleness. And there you go. The first thing is, is to be teachable. Are you teachable? When somebody comes to you um, with the truth, I, I tell this story, I've, I've told it a few times, but my wife, um, when I saw her in high school in a carload full of girls, I looked into the back of the car, they pull over and ask directions for to a party. And I went home and told my mom, I just saw the girl I'm going to marry. And she did not get that memo for five years. So though I knew I was going to marry Elliot, Elliot didn't know I was going to marry Elliot. So for five years, I pursued her and I finally got her. I was so over the moon happy. And then my dad brought out his gigantic, after we were engaged, King James Bible, because that was the only really approved Bible in the legalistic tradition. And he opened it up and he read her from First Timothy and said, are you going to say submit? 
in your wedding vows to your husband. And my wife said, of course not. I'm his equal, and we're going to work, walk the world together. I'm not going to submit to him, and he's not going to submit to me. So my dad read to her from First Peter, wives submit to your husbands. And I remember Elliot's face. She looked at him, and she looked at the Bible, and she went, well, if that's what it says, then I guess I'll say submit. So 22 years of worldview, right out of college, a little bit feminist leaning from her college, immediately changed because God told her in his word, then that was it. No argument, no justification. If it says submit, then I submit. I mean, think about the, the huge step that was, but it was no step for her because she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Are we teachable? When we see things in God's word, I, I was just talking to some Christian leaders who were wrong about something, and I quoted scripture showing them that they were wrong. And they waited for, patiently for me to quote scripture, and then they just went right along as if I hadn't quoted scripture. It meant nothing to them. They did not have the humility to be teachable before the Lord. The second is patience. Let's be patient with people who maybe haven't had the same upbringing we do, don't know scripture we do, or struggle with that pride. They're not as teachable, but gently correct others to bring them over to the Lord's side, not our side. We never want to win arguments, but we want to be patient. So now as we go into this whole thing, we're going to see that God has great rewards for those who follow him diligently. We will reign with him. The promises he gives us are unbelievable. We're going to go through them all. The crowns he promises us. What you're doing in this life will be greatly valued. As I close, I want to talk about a friend of mine. Uh, really, it's my wife's friend's husband, whom I knew somewhat. And I was really surprised. My wife said, gee, you know, he, he's been carrying your book around and really talking about your book all the time. I said, really? I mean, he knows scripture really well. I'm surprised that he's so into my book. I mean, it's really neat, but, it, but it's odd that he's so into it. Well, he was a really neat man. He was very generous. He's a lot, lot older than I am. He was very generous, um, very diligent, very godly, and he had terminal cancer, which none of us realized, not even his wife. So when she finally found out that he had terminal cancer, he died within three weeks. But suddenly I realized why he was gripping this book so much, because I think, in fact, he had said to his wife, it's the first time everybody, anybody ever explained to me why I worked so hard to be a good guy, why I worked so hard to follow the Lord. And here he was dying and none of us knew it. But he was able to hold on to this book and say, now I understand I have a mission in life and God is going to recognize that and reward me. And he knew he was going to be getting to heaven very soon. We're going to start chapter one with a story, my own story of thinking I was about to go to heaven and what caused all this change in my theology to get us to this point together. I'm looking forward to going on this ride with you guys. It's going to be awesome, I hope life-changing, and I think it's going to infuse you with a great deal of joy and the power of the Spirit when you realize that your sacrifices, your generosity, your obedience to the Lord is recognized by Him. He'll never forget it. He's writing it all down in books, and He's going to reward you greatly for your diligence.